Good morning. This is the reading of the word of the Lord from Leviticus 27. Nothing that a man permanently sets apart to the Lord from all he owns, whether a person, an animal, or his inherited land holding, can be sold or redeemed. Everything set apart is especially holy to the Lord. No person who has been set apart for destruction is to be ransomed. He must be put to death. Every tenth of the land's produce, grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man decides to redeem any part of this tenth, he must add a fifth to its value. Every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He is not to inspect whether it is good or bad, and he is not to make a substitution for it. But if he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute will be holy. They cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses for the Israelites on Mount Sinai. Amen. All right. Well, church family, uh, it is good to be with you here this morning. Uh, I just have to get something off my chest really quick. While we were leading music here, I... Focusing my heart on the Lord, and I'm looking at Max's bright pink electric guitar and my green electric guitar, and I thought, we're like a watermelon together. And these are the things I have to fight off inside of my own head in order to be able to focus on the Lord. And so if you come in today and you've got things on your mind or distractions, just know that uh, this preacher here is also fighting those same battles along with you. So uh, today, we are coming to the end of our long journey through the book of Leviticus. And I was reflecting, I actually have a couple of different long journeys that I'm involved in in my life right now. Um, I am currently, for fun, reading Homer's Odyssey. I've never read it before. Uh, I'm not reading it in the Greek. I'm reading it in a very new translation that is very readable and iambic pentameter. And it is super fun. It's super enjoyable. I have it, get this, it's a, I have it on paper. It's a, it's a book made out of paper, like not even on a Kindle. I'm, this is a long journey I'm involved in. Another long journey I'm involved in, uh, well, parenting, that's a different one. Um, I also have recently decided, because nothing on TV is, is good, so I am going back to maybe the greatest television show that was ever made, a show called 24, starring Kiefer Sutherland. So I've been re-watching through that. Um, and then the book of Leviticus. We're done with the book of Leviticus. A lot of long journeys, a lot of long voyages. And uh, this one really is, has been particularly meaningful for me to be able to teach through and to be able to help offer thoughts that will help us be able to not only read this book of the Bible in the future, but thoughts that will hopefully draw our hearts closer to Jesus, because that's the point, that we would become closer to our Lord and we would grow to be more like him. And so what I want to do today is I want to spend a little bit of time kind of reviewing where we've been and then tackling this last chapter. And this teaching is just simply titled, Giving to the Lord. And so I ask you to pray with me as we uh, get ready to, to open up Leviticus chapter 27 here. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us, that you have redeemed us, that you have called us, that you have set your affections upon us. And Lord, we know that you are inviting us Just as you were inviting these people so many thousands of years ago, Lord, you are inviting us into a close relationship, a relationship of wholehearted devotion to you. And Lord, though we stray and though we don't always or or though we very often hold back parts of our heart and our lives from you, 
I pray today as we dive into this chapter, you would use this time as just one of the ways to grow us closer to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right. A little bit of review. If you haven't been here with us before, uh, I'm just going to catch you up in about five minutes, the whole book of Leviticus. So we started with these five offerings, five different offerings that the Lord gave to his people. The first one is called the burnt offering, or sometimes called the ascension offering. And the idea with this offering, the whole entire thing was burned up. None of it was saved. And it was a voluntary offering that signified wholehearted devotion to God. God, here is this offering, here's this sacrifice. I'm not going to eat any of the sacrifice. The priests aren't going to eat any of the sacrifice. This whole thing is burnt up and just given to you, Lord, for no other reason than I want to be with you and I want to give you praise and worship. That's where the book of Leviticus starts, the very first thing right out of the gate. The second offering is what's known as the grain offering or sometimes cereal offering. You'll hear it called that. And the idea behind that offering is that grain and really life, bread is life, grain is life, abundant life comes from God. How many of you know God is the author of all life? He gives all life. The third offering was the fellowship offering, the, the shalomim. It comes from the word shalom, and it's the idea of you share this meal. God is there, the people are there, the priests are there, the, the animal is sacrificed, and the meat is butchered and barbecued. Because barbecue is a holy occasion unto the Lord, amen? And the people come together, and it's like, it's like you get to share a meal with a king, and all is well, and all is at shalom. The fourth offering is called the sin offering, or often referred to as the purification offering. And the idea behind this offering is that there needs to be purification in order to come close to God. How many of you know that like the ancient Israelites, our lives are at times marked by sin? And God cannot be in the presence of sin because he is perfect and holy and righteous in all of his ways. So there is a sin offering to be made in order to come close to God. And then fifth and finally is what's known as the guilt offering or sometimes called the reparation offering. And the idea there is it's not just that our sin creates a a, a relational breach with God, but how many of you know that at times our sinfulness messes up our relationships with each other? Our sin has ramifications. We hurt each other. We have distance with each other. And so the guilt offering is a way to make the situation better. There's actually a a repayment, okay? So that's where we started with. There was these five offerings. Well, then that raises the question, well, who's going to lead these five offerings? How are we going to know when it's the right time? And God says, I'm going to establish a priesthood. I'm going to give you the tribe of Levi, and the priesthood will be established. And we read uh, early in Leviticus, that they, they, they sorted out all the, the offerings, they sorted out who was going to serve in the priesthood, and it was established, and tabernacle worship begins. You guys remember, maybe those of you who are here, um, remember how at the end of Leviticus, it says that Moses couldn't even enter into the presence of the Lord, he couldn't even enter into the tents, like I thought the whole point was to be with God, but then once they had the sacrifices, and then once they did the priesthood, then Moses was able to go into the tent, and I made you clap, and I made you cheer really loud, you guys remember that? It's like, that's the big deal, that's It's like this amazing climactic moment. God promises to be with his people, and it finally happens. The priesthood is established. But we don't get one verse later before then the priesthood is violated. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, fail in a a dramatic fashion. We don't exactly know what's going on there. We know that very likely they had been drinking on the job. 
because the very first command on the other side of their failure is, hey, priests shouldn't drink when it's, you know, their, their time to, to work. I want you to know this is coffee and that is water, okay? So uh, they fail and it's also, they're offering some sort of uh, uh, fire, some sort of incense, something before the Lord that was not commanded. In the most likely scenario, is like they kind of got a little tipsy and just decided, hey, what if we did this with the worship service? And God said, no, you may not approach me with that kind of lack of reverence and lack of awe. On the other side of that, we saw various food laws that were given to the people of Israel to remind us that eating and drinking is worship. And though we who are Gentiles are not under those same food laws in the same ways, your eating and your drinking is to be an act of worship unto the Lord. Can I get an amen from the church on that? This afternoon, as you're, you know, chowing down on some buffalo wings or nachos or whatever you got going on for a football party, uh, or maybe if you don't like football and you're sitting there just eating your quinoa and kale salad or whatever you got going on, it's all to be worship as unto the Lord. And then a variety of ritual purity laws were given. And these are some of the strange ones for us, right? About skin diseases and about, about mildew on the walls and about various bodily discharges. And I kept joking to invite your grandma to that sermon. And then I got a text from my parents three days before and they showed up on that weekend. So I had to preach about bodily discharges with my mom and dad sitting here in the second row. And that was awkward. But the whole point of these ritual purity laws is that they remind us that death has been unleashed into the world. And death is this very real force, and God is a God of life, and when we gather into the presence of God, we can't come with the muddy shoes of death into the perfect house of God. And so the Lord gave his people these various ritual uh, ways to purify themselves of washings and bathings, whether it was a skin disease or touching a corpse or bodily discharges, to come into God's presence in a ritually pure manner. And it's really important. This is not a trick question. I want you to answer this. Is ritual impurity the same as sin? No. Big, big thing to remember when you're reading the book of Leviticus. And then there's this culmination on Leviticus chapter 16 with something called the Day of Atonement or the Day of Purging that all year long, day after day, week after week, people keep bringing their sins and they keep bringing their muddy shoes of death into the presence of the Lord. And the idea is that it kind of like builds up on the tabernacle. It builds up over the place where God's presence dwells. And so once a year, the priest takes these two goats. One goat is sacrificed and brought into the holiest of holy places and the blood is sprinkled on the altar signifying that that through a, a faithful sacrificial representative we can come right into the presence of God and the second goat has two hands laid on its head and all of the sins and all of the yuck is placed on this scapegoat and it is sent out into the wilderness to take this truckload of filth to the God of death himself Azazel or as we know that ancient serpent the devil and our sins are atoned for and all is made right, and God's people can be in his presence. And then the last big section that we've been in is what's known as the holiness code. And all throughout the holiness code, we see that God's holiness is not just contained to the tabernacle. It's not just contained to one location, to one spot, but God wants his holiness to pervade every single aspect of our lives. God wants every square inch of your being your mind, your heart, your body, your finances, your sexuality, your driving. He wants it all. We saw throughout this section that, that life is sacred. The life is in the blood. And so we are to honor life and to be champions of life and to see flourishing and, and life anywhere that we can. 
We saw that God spends a great deal of time talking about what holy sexuality looks like, that we are to use our bodies and, and, the, and the gift of sexuality that God has given to humanity, we're to use it in a life-honoring and in a God-honoring and in a committed sort of way because it is one of the most potent things in all of human existence. And so we don't mess around with fire. Fire is wonderful when it's in the fireplace. Fire is terrible when it breaks loose in other parts of your home. We saw that God wants whole life holiness. The, the laundry list of Leviticus uh, chapter 20, where it just kind of goes through everything, your clothing and the way you cut your hair and how you plant your seeds and your business belongs to God and your, your attire belongs to God and everything is to be set apart and distinct and uniquely holy. And then we, we looked at this case of blasphemy where, where God wants our words to be used in a way that is honoring to him and life-giving. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, Rabbi Matt taught us on sacred time and how there's these Sabbaths and these festivals and these feasts that were to put appointments in the calendar to remind. I love what he said. There's these appointments in the calendar to remind us of what we've already forgotten. You just schedule it in the calendar. Oh, it is, it is Sukkot. Time to be joyful. I need to remember to be joyful. I love that. And then lastly, last week, I kind of wrapped up the book of Leviticus by teaching on these two pathways, that there's a, a pathway to blessing of covenant obedience and a, and a pathway of, of eternal destruction for covenant disobedience. And we read these words of Leviticus 26, verse 46. It says, these are the statutes, statutes, not statues, statutes, ordinances, and laws that the Lord established between himself and the Israelites through Moses on Mount Sinai. This very fitting conclusion, we did it. We've reached the end of Leviticus. First of all, I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself. I did that in seven minutes. Went through the whole entire book of Leviticus in seven minutes. And some of y'all are thinking, why did it take you five months then? Well, because that was really hard, and I like the, 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 the taking time on it. Only one problem. The book of Leviticus isn't done. There's a chapter 27. This is the statutes, the ordinance. It's all over. Verse 27, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when someone makes a special vow to the Lord... Uh-oh, it was all so fitting. We did it. We had like eternity. We have the concluding sentence. Now, some scholars think that maybe this was an addition to the book of Leviticus, maybe even possibly during the time of the return from the exile about a millennia later. But uh, I, I think there is actually a logic to this section. Richard Hess, who's one biblical scholar that I've leaned on during this teaching series, he says this. He says, if chapter 26, verse 46 forms a concluding comment on Leviticus, then chapter 27, it's like a, an addendum. It's like an appendix. It deals with special gifts or vows or things dedicated to the Lord. Now, unlike previous sacrifices, those in chapter 27 are not obligatory for all Israel, nor are they breaches in the sanctity of the congregation. Instead, they are vows and gifts that individuals take on in the course of their dealings with God. They describe the free acts of dedication to God by those who wish to perform them. You guys track with that? Like some of the sacrifices, they're mandatory. You must give the, you know, the, the purification offering, the guilt offering. These festivals must be celebrated at these times. What, what Richard Hess is saying is, is these gifts and these sacrifices and these vows that are performed to the Lord, they're just above and beyond. Just because I want to. Just because I felt like it. 
And Richard Hess says, thus, the gifts noted here describe a proper addendum to the people of God who rejoice in their salvation and express that joy to God. A few different times in my life, I've gotten to be around someone who met the Lord Jesus and received his salvation at like a later season of life. And I've, I've had several different times, someone's like, I gotta move to... I got to move to Africa and be a missionary right now. I've got to sell all my possessions. I have to do this. This passion takes over. It's a beautiful thing to watch just out of this sheer overwhelming joy. I can't believe that God would save me. I can't believe that God would redeem me. I can't believe that he would love me in this way. Let me just give everything I have to the Lord. Have you seen that in your life? How many of you wish, maybe you've walked with the Lord for a while. How many wish that you could recapture a little bit of that passion sometimes in your life. Well, that's what today is about. Now, Leviticus 27, broadly speaking, has these kind of two chunks. The first section is about people being dedicated to the Lord. And the second chunk is about things, objects, animals, a house. Somebody wants to give a house to the tabernacle. Okay? So let's talk about the persons. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on the people and a little less time on the stuff, just because I think people are more important than stuff. I'm not trying to be controversial here, but I just think people are more important than things. So that made me sound kind of sanctimonious, but uh, I'm just going with it. Leviticus 27, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when someone makes a special vow to the Lord that involves the assessment of people, If the assessment concerns a male from 20 to 60 years old, your assessment is 50 silver shekels, silver shekels, measured by the standard sanctuary shekel. You all know the standard sanctuary shekel, obviously. Um, I think it's 50 grams, 30 grams, I can't remember. I wrote it down somewhere. If the person, and then I didn't bring it with me up here on the stage. uh, If the person's a female, your assessment is 30 shekels. And some of y'all's eyebrows just went up. We'll come back to that. If the person is from 5 to 20 years old, your assessment for a male is 20 shekels and a female is 10 shekels. Some of you are really mad at this passage now. Verse 6, if a person is from 1 month to 5 years old, your assessment for a male is 5 silver shekels and for a female, the assessment is 3 shekels of silver. If the person is 60 years or more, your assessment is 15 shekels for male and 10 shekels for male. Now some of you other ones are, are mad, but in a more tired sort of way. But if one is too poor to pay the assessment. You can't, you can't pay these assessments. He's to present the person before the priest, and the priest will just, you know, figure out a value for him. And the priest will set a value for him according to what the one making the vow can afford. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. This is absolutely... Some, some of y'all never, in your read-throughs of Leviticus, you never even made it to this chapter. You gave up far, far earlier in the book. You gave up on, what are we splattering blood on? Some of y'all have never dealt with Leviticus 27. And wait, how much is this person worth? And what are we doing here? Okay, don't gloss over. There's something kind of important going on here. Okay, here's the idea. This is about devoted people. A couple things I want to say about this. Number one, this is above and beyond the normal devotion. Okay? Question, again, not a trick question. Are all of God's people supposed to be devoted to their God? I'm not trying to trick you, okay? You can confidently answer, yes, 
We ought to be fully devoted to the Lord. But there are some times and there are some circumstances where a person says, I just want to be so above and beyond devoted. I want to just give my whole self or I want to dedicate a person. I want to dedicate myself unto the Lord. A great example of that would be later on in the Old Testament, uh, a young boy who grows up to be known as the prophet Samuel. Remember Samuel's story? If you remember the very beginning of 1 Samuel, his mother is unable to conceive and have children. And she is in the tabernacle. I believe it was set up at Shiloh at the time. It's not yet in Jerusalem in the permanent temple. And she's in there and she's praying and she's crying. And it it sounds like she's almost kind of like praying under her breath and kind of mumbling or talking to herself because the priest, Eli, comes up and assumes that she's drunk. He assumes she's been drinking and she's like praying kind of weird. Some of you feel embarrassed about your praying in group settings. Hopefully you've never had someone come up to you while you're praying and say, are you drunk like a community group? So Hannah's praying, and, and the priest goes, what are you praying for? She goes, I'm just so brokenhearted. I really want to have a child, and if the Lord would be gracious to me and bless me and give me a child, I'll just dedicate. I'll just, he can just move into the tabernacle, and he can be a servant to you as the priest. And Eli gives her a word from the Lord, and it comes to pass, and she hands Samuel off to be raised in the tabernacle. Something like that is what Leviticus 27 is talking about, this this extra special devotion. I know it may seem weird to us to think about, I'm just going to give away one of my kids to the church. Some of y'all try to bring your kids and give them to us here. We won't take them, okay? We've seen how they act. Uh, You go back home and read a parenting book. But, you know, just it's a different cultural sort of expectation to just be devoted, so devoted to the Lord, to, to give yourself or to give another family member, to give a child to the Lord. But this idea is this act of extreme devotion, God deserves the very best I could give. God deserves even one of my own children. As a side note, there's a tragic kind of parallel story in the book of Judges. It's tragic because it's in the book of Judges. You kind of could see that coming. But this man named Jephthah makes this rash vow to the Lord after the Lord gives him victory in a battle. He says, whatever walks out the front door of my house, the first thing that comes out, I'm going to sacrifice that to the Lord. And out walks his daughter. And Judges shows us how when when people get themselves into a really unfortunate and rash sort of a situation like that, maybe there needs to be an opportunity to shift. And that's what all these redemption prices are. The idea is there is a redemption price to change your status. If someone makes a vow to the Lord and is a male between 20 to 60 years old, and you're like, you know what? I actually have other things to do. I can't stay and work and serve at the tabernacle all the time. Well, I can give 50 standard tabernacle silver shekels, and that's actually a more useful gift because actually what the tabernacle doesn't necessarily need is a bunch of people just standing around saying, well, what do I even do? It's just, there's there's such a beautiful pragmatism to this. The Lord's like, yeah, you want to be dedicated? You want to serve? You want to help set up and tear down the tabernacle? Great. But we can't actually use all of you, so instead give, give some shekels, give some money. Now, the prices, you may have noticed, changed both by age and by gender. So the, the most expensive redemption price was a male between 20 and 60 years old. The, 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 the least expensive, or the least costly is infants and toddlers. Now, what is going on here? Why would we value different people with different prices of money? Now, here's the logic that's going on here. The redemption price is based on 
physical capacity. Physical capacity to lift heavy things, to pick up chunks of meat that have been sacrificed, to pick up the tent, to pick up the heavy stakes, the ropes, the curtains. Have you guys ever tried to carry like stage curtains? I've spent most of my life in music. I've done choir. I've done theater. My children do theater. My sister is like an opera singer. She's incredible. And if you've ever tried to pick up curtains, they are stinking heavy. So what is going on here is that this is about a a vow and a dedication to help out, but to say I'm only able to do X amount because of my age or the, the biological difference between men and women where men on the whole, typically speaking, have more strength, particular upper body strength. Jay Sklar, who's another, one of these scholars who've leaned on a lot, he says, moderns may be tempted to assume that these prices are related to a person's intrinsic value, which, if true, would mean that males were of greater intrinsic value than females of the same age. And he goes on to say, that's foolish, because younger people are not, in, you know, uh, prime age people are not more intrinsically valued than babies or than the elderly. The scripture actually commands us to take care of our elderly family members. And if we who call on the name of Jesus don't actually care for our family members in their older age, Paul has some really stern words. He says, you're worse than an unbeliever and you're denied the faith. Men and women, both created equally in the image and likeness of God. Amen? This is a much more pragmatic thing that's happening in this passage. A better explanation, he says, is that the prices are related to a person's ability to perform physical labor in an agrarian society. To put it in blunt modern terms, a tractor that can harvest 50 acres a day simply costs more than a tractor that can harvest 30 acres a day. I've not shopped for tractors recently. I'm just going to take his word for it, okay? Since people aged 20 to 60 are in the prime of life, their price is highest. And since males are typically physically stronger, pound for pound, than females, their price is higher, especially since females also had extra time demands in terms of bearing and raising children. All the ladies say amen, all the moms, yes and amen to that. And, And not to belabor this point too much, but there are just some biological differences between males and females. Those of you women who have been gifted with with children, only you can carry that child in the womb for nine months. And only you can use your body that God created in his image and likeness to nurse and to nourish that child. And that takes a physical toll on you. It takes time. And there is no excuse for men to not be involved in the lives of their children as a loving father and provider and and a a teacher and all those sorts of things. But the, the, the role of parenting is not symmetrical, despite what the most uh, voices in our, in our society would like to say. God has just hardwired some things into biological reality. In short, this chart reflects labor value, not intrinsic value. By the way, another scholar, I'm not going to quote it because I want to quote scholars all day long, but Jacob Milgram says that when you compare some of these valuations to other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the Bible is remarkably higher value on women and, and their work out in the, in the world than other societies did. So what's going on here is some people can say, I really just want to devote myself to the Lord. I want to devote a person to the Lord. But maybe it's not practical to spend all of that time there in the tabernacle doing that work. So let me just give some money instead. And those who are specially trained, like the priests and the Levites, well, they can actually do the work. I actually think there's a really great analogy here for the team that we just sent to Mexico a week before last. 
I've been to the, the, the mission, the, or, the orphanage in Mexico. I went there when I was 17 years old. And what they do is they take all of us Americans who want to come down and help, and they make you sweep floors. I helped pour concrete when I was 17 years old for the clinic. And every time one of our teams goes down there, I said, is the clinic still standing? Because I know my concrete pouring skills, and they're a little bit sus, as the kids would say, Okay. And the people who live there and the people who know how to speak Spanish and the people who are embedded in the lives of the people in the community, they're there to actually do the work. And I'm able to support with just some menial labor or money or financial contributions. It's something like that that's going on. Now, that's dedicated people. Let's deal briefly with dedicated possessions. And I want to make some some considerations here. In verses 9 through 13, you can give various animals to the tabernacle. Now, it mentions specifically both clean and unclean. You can, give, you can give animals to the tabernacle, the clean ones. Maybe they would be used as like extra sacrifices to keep on hand, either for the priests themselves or maybe for a poor person who shows up and can't afford it. But then you sit thinking, why would you bring an unclean animal into the tabernacle? I thought the unclean animals were supposed to stay away from. And the answer is, there are animals that are unclean to eat, or maybe un, even unclean to, to touch, but they're really helpful, like a donkey. You're not allowed to eat a donkey. I don't know why on God's green earth you would ever want to, but uh, you can use a donkey to carry things and lift things. And so there's a provision for various animals that you can give. And if you can't afford the animal, there's money that you can give as well. There's an assessment. You can give house and land. You can give your house to the Lord. You say, Lord, I love you so much. I just want to give you my house. We've had that happen in, 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 in ministry. I've seen that done before where people have donated pieces of property or donated a house and it turns into like a, you know, a, a parsonage for the, for, the, for the pastor or like an intern house where people are getting training in ministry, have a place to live for cheap or for free. I've seen that happen. It's an awesome thing. By the way, the land doesn't get to stay forever because, and this is a whole different topic we don't have time to get into, but on the, the year of Jubilee, on the seventh, seventh year, that land always goes back to the families and always goes back to the ancestral communities, but you can still give it to be used for those years um, to the, the tabernacle and to the priests. Uh, number three, verses 26 to 29 discuss some things of, of a permanent devotion, things that are just destroyed and completely gotten rid of. And this is a really complicated subject. Um, this gets into something that's called harem law, which is where you see it oftentimes, it talks about, uh, uh, you know, in Joshua or, or in the conquest narratives that a whole town was completely devoted to the Lord, meaning it was completely destroyed. It's almost like a sacrificial destruction. It's a big, complicated thing. But, but the idea is here, some things you just can't take back. When you give certain gifts or make certain vows, you can't change your mind. They're completely, permanently devoted unto the Lord. And if you want more resources on harem law, you can email me or or get in touch with our church and we'll, we'll get you some resources on that. And then lastly, number four, you can give of your produce and you can give of your flocks. And the word there that's used is a tithe which means simply a tenth. And you have to think, how gracious is God to say one out of 10? Even those of you who were not very good at math or algebra or whatever, you can still do this. And then you can do this, okay? It's not that hard. Some of you are like, do I have to take my shoes off? No, that's 20. Stop with your fingers. What the Lord says is as you're, as you're harvesting your grapes, 
One cluster, the first cluster goes to the Lord. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten for us. Next one, next cluster of grapes goes to the Lord. And there is a tenth of your produce that is to be given unto the Lord. Just a quick little side note. And I'm going to talk about tithing more in a minute. But just imagine these people of Israel giving a tenth of their produce, their flocks, their tithes, all that stuff. But that's in addition to the burnt offering, the sin offering, the fellowship offering, the grain offering. When you add it up, um, scholars have tried to kind of try to figure out how much the average Israelite would have ended up giving up. It's probably closer to about 30% of their possessions. So when we talk about New Testament generosity and tithing and all of that sort of stuff, um, I would just go so far as to say 10% is not a burdensome thing. So, the book of Leviticus ends with, again, these are the commands the Lord gave Moses for the Israelites on Mount Sinai. So let me make a few observations, a few things to consider here from this passage. Three things, okay? Number one, Everything belongs to God. Everything that I own, everything that you own, everything that the Federal Reserve Bank owns, everything that every uh, rich Russian oligarch owns, everything that... uh, Every nation, every family, every person, everything on earth, even those things that are yet unclaimed in nature and in creation, like Mars, belongs to, despite Elon Musk's best attempt to claim it for himself, it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Now, we who are Citizens of the United States of America, Western capitalistic democracy, we really struggle with this. The Bible is not opposed to property ownership. In fact, I can take you to explicit verses in Exodus that that would um, commend that to you in Leviticus as well. The the Ten Commandments, the presumption of, of thou shalt not steal, would assume some sort of property ownership. The Bible is not advocating for some sort of... um, you know, communal utopia that only Karl Marx could have ever dreamed of, right? But, but, with those admissions of property ownership, with those admissions of you own these possessions, these things are yours to use, what is it from start to finish that the Bible continues to remind us of? It all belongs to God. You're a steward, not an owner. Do you know the difference between a steward and an owner? It's the difference between house-sitting and purchasing your own house. I've shared this story before, but um, in 2011, so 11 years ago, just over 11 years ago, my family moved from Alaska to Seattle. I was to be a part of a church planting training program, and uh, we were looking for a place to stay kind of in the Ballard, Fremont neighborhood, and I was driving around picking up, picking up rental applications. 
And I had some income from rental property back in Alaska, but I was thinking I'd probably have to get a part-time job and do some work and this internship. And, and we were driving around looking for a place to stay, and I literally had rental applications in my hands. And one of the pastors from the church called me on my phone and said, hey, you didn't, you didn't rent a place yet, did you? No. And he said, there's a family in the church that's leaving, and they're going to go teach in China for a year, and they want to know if there's like a family that would want to stay in their house for free for a year. And I said... I can think of a family, yes. <laughs> and by God's grace, we lived in this house rent-free. We just had to pay utilities. And toilet repair when one of my daughters flushed a champagne cork down the toilet. And let me tell you what, champagne corks are really good at stopping liquid from flowing. So it was a huge blessing from the Lord. It's this huge blessing from the Lord. Now, I love my house that I live in. I'm extremely grateful for the house I live in. I try to take good care of it. I have repairs that I just look at. I'm like, I need to get to that. And then four years goes by, and I was like, I still need to get to that. When we were living in someone else's house, I have never taken such good care of a property in my entire life because I knew that it didn't belong to me. This was a gracious gift from someone else that I was to steward. Every penny in your bank account the car you're going to get into and drive home after this church service, the chair that you're sitting on right now, the coats and the shirts and the pants and the shoes that you're wearing right now, it all belongs to God. Number two, time and treasure are key to checking if you really understand that everything you have belongs to God. So time, all of these vows, if a person was to live out this vow, it would mean I'm gonna be at the tabernacle every day. I don't have free time. I don't have leisure time. I don't get to use my time the way I want to. I am going to commit my time to a particularly, uh, particular devotion, an active devotion to the Lord, and that's what I'm going to be doing. Or, if I don't have that ability to give the time, I'm going to give my treasure. These, these valuations, these like 50 shekels, that's like a couple years worth of income. It's like two years for uh, that prime-aged male. That's like about how much you could earn in two years worth of work. So what's the median uh, you know, income? You know, what, $75,000 a year or something like that? It's 150 grand to redeem your time back. These things are key. Friends, when you want to check... If you really are living like your whole life belongs to God and everything you are and everything you have belongs to God, check your time and check your treasure. How do you spend your time? How do you give of your time? And how do you give of your money? Are you generous with those who are in need? Do you support the work of the mission of God through various organizations that you believe in their cause? Do you give of your tithes and your offerings to the church that you call your local home church where leaders are entrusted watching over your souls? If you want to see and check your own heart, if you really are living like everything belongs to God, check your time and t check your treasure. Is it a sin to... Watch TV? No. Is it a sin to go on a vacation? No. Is it a sin to have some, some you know, luxury sort of spending, you know, to use your money for something of joy or pleasure? No, absolutely not. But it's a, it's a matter of first fruits and a matter of priority. Do you prioritize the fun and then give to the Lord your leftover? Do you prioritize giving to the Lord and then say, hey, if there's an abundance, we're going to throw a feast? The Bible is very pro-feast. Pro-joy, once we have. 
fulfilled our vows to the Lord. And number three, redemption is costly. I just kind of imagine some of these people just getting themselves into something that they kind of couldn't get themselves out of. And all of a sudden, they're saying, like, I need to go back to work on the farm, or I need to go back. And they're looking at her like, 50 shekels? You, you can imagine some wife looking at her husband like, you're, you're not worth 50 shekels. Come on. You can, how much is this going to cost us to get out? Right? It's a big deal. This redemption thing, it is super costly. You imagine someone getting themselves into a situation that they couldn't then get themselves out of, and you're sitting there looking like, boy, I sure wish that someone would pay my redemption price. Now, friends, you know where I'm going with this. Because every single one of us has gotten ourselves into a situation that we cannot get out of. Through our rash vows, we have made a deal with the devil, so to speak, through our sinful words and our sinful actions, and now all of a sudden we wake up and we find ourselves enslaved, not to the tabernacle of the one true God, but to the tabernacle of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, and all of a sudden, here we are saying, how do I get out of this mess? How, who's going to pay my redemption price? Well, friends, I have good news for you. That the Lord God looked upon us in our helpless estate from eternity past and he knew that we would all be enslaved and unable to pay our own redemption price and so God sent his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to live a perfect life, to be fully devoted to the will of his Father in heaven and to die on a cross, to spill his blood, to pay our redemption from sin and death. Second Peter, sorry, First Peter, the Apostle Peter uses this exact language from Leviticus to talk about what Jesus has done. He says, look, you know that you were redeemed. You were redeemed from this empty, vain, futile way of life that was inherited from your ancestors. Peter's almost even saying, like, you didn't even get yourself into this mess necessarily. It's been since the beginning of time that we've been in deep You've been redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver, like sanctuary shekels of silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. Every careless word you've spoke, every rash vow that you've made, every time you have sinned, you have given yourself over into the service of the enemy, but Christ spilled his blood that we might be redeemed. And now he's risen, he's ascended to the right hand of his father, one day he is going to return, we're going to see him, as the sky breaks apart and the trumpet sounds and we will be with him forever enjoying tabernacle presence, feasts of shalom because the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus has been accomplished. And so I simply ask you, friends, in light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that was foreshadowed here in the book of Leviticus, I have one last question for you. Does God truly have your heart's deepest Devotion. Does God have your heart's deepest devotion? You know, I was joking with the musicians earlier this week when we were practicing that, that song, I Surrender All. I remember being a kid and my mom leading that song in a worship service and she, she turned to us and she goes, that's really not true. She goes, if we're trying to be honest, we'd actually sing like, I surrender 
some. <laughs> Friends, let me, let me ask you this. Quick show of hands. How many of you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there are parts of your heart and your life that you just hold back from the Lord? Every time we gather like this, every time you open your Bible, every time you write that check or, or give online, every time you get away for a prayer and retreat day and just some silence and solitude with the Lord, every time you do that, what you're in effect saying is, Lord, I know that there's parts of my heart that I still hold back from you, but I just want to keep drawing nearer to you. The Lord's not done with you. In Christ, the Lord's not disappointed with you. Because get this, no one is more perfectly devoted to the will of the Father than Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, you're united with him by faith, and what's true of Jesus is now true of you. And though on your own, you are not fully devoted, right? We all have areas that we're, we're still a mess. In Christ, you're as devoted to the will of the Father as Jesus and your father's pleased with you. So you're now free to worship. You're free to give. You're free to serve. Not to earn anything from God. Because you already have the, all the blessings of heaven in Christ. But just to simply tell God, I love you. I can't believe that you would save me like this. I can't believe you would give me the life you've given me and the promise of eternal life to come. How good is our God, friends? How good is our Savior? As we come to the table of the Lord here in a moment and we sing and we lift our voices, we're going to sing, Lord, all I have is yours. And we're going to sing, Lord, your will be done in my life. And let our prayer today be, I want it to be more true of me today than it was yesterday. I surrender some more than I did yesterday. <laughs> Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the book of Leviticus. Thank you for the gospel that was so richly foreshadowed in these pages. We thank you for the invitation to draw near to you through the person and the work of Jesus. And I ask and I pray, even now, Lord God, as we come to eat and to drink at this table, as we lift our voices yet one more time to sing, and as we prepare to go out into our lives, I pray that our lives would be just that one more step devoted to you than they were. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.